Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 15th of November, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson, and joining me by video link today, uh, we have Debbie Evans, Vanessa Bailey, and uh, for the first time, Charles Mallet joining us today as well. So welcome all. Uh, we're going to get straight on with the uh, Supreme Court decision uh, on the uh, Rwanda situation. Now, of course, this is the British government wanting to uh, remove asylum seekers in the UK to Rwanda uh, under certain circumstances. This has been through a long drawn out court case over the last couple of years. And uh, the Su Supreme Court this morning unanimously dismisses the Home Secretary's appeal and upholds the Court of Appeals con conclusion that the Rwanda policy is unlawful. Uh, so let's have a look at uh, Lord Reid, the Supreme, Supreme Court uh, president, saying uh, there's a legal rule that refugees must not be returned to their country of origin if their lives would be threatened in that country. So they were saying, they were asking the question, or they were questioning whether uh, the Rwanda policy breached uh, various laws, including human rights laws, human, uh, European uh, Court of Human Rights laws, uh, as uh, and so on. Uh, if there were grounds to believe that asylum seekers were at risk of what they call uh, refoulement, uh, then that cannot, then they cannot be sent to Rwanda, said Lord Reid. And uh, he said that Rwanda had a poor human rights record. He said that uh, Rwanda's 100% rate of rejection of asylum claims from countries in known conflict zones, for example, in Syria or Yemen or Afghanistan, uh, that that basically ruled them out. Uh, and uh, he also mentioned the apparent misunderstanding uh, of obligations under the Refugee Convention on behalf of Rwanda as well. So, of course, this has been uh, uh, suggested that it was linked to the U European Convention on Human Rights. Maybe Britain should be being removed from the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, and at least one uh, minister of state has said that Rishi Sunak is considering uh, quitting the ECHR if, uh, if, if this decision went against them, which it has. Um, I just want to remind everybody, this is really a bit of a, a fake story in a sense, uh, because if we look at some of the reporting from this uh, some time ago, uh, this is the evening standard. Uh, Rwanda says it can only bring 2,000 migrants, or sorry, 200 migrants from UK under a controversial deportation scheme. So really, on this, you know, in the greater scheme of things, this uh, deportation scheme to Rwanda was not going to have any significant impact uh, on the uh, asylum situation in the UK in any case. But in the meantime, it's certainly being uh, ramped up uh, with a view to encouraging unhappiness amongst certain sections of the population. Uh, Rishi Sunak, what did he have to say? He said, uh, this was not the outcome that we wanted, uh, but we have spent the last few months planning for all eventualities and we remain completely committed to stopping the boats. Uh, crucially, the Supreme Court, like the Court of Appeal and the High Court before it, has confirmed that the principle of sending illegal migrants to a safe third country uh, for processing is lawful. This confirms uh, the government's clear view from the outset. Illegal migration destroys lives and costs British taxpayers millions of pounds a year. We need to end it and we'll do whatever it takes to do so. So that was what he was saying this morning. But we shouldn't uh, forget that where the model for this deportation of asylum seekers came from, uh, and that is Israel. Um, so this was the Middle East Eye uh, in 2022 in April. Uh, and let's just bring uh, a little bit of uh, text up on screen. When Israel began deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda eight years ago, it did so in secret. Johnson's government has copied that scheme, but done so brazenly to show that post-Brexit Britain is the most host hostile corner of Europe to refugees. 
Uh, that's what Middle East I had to say about it. But of course, uh, this, we should make the point, has got nothing to do with Brexit because the European Convention on Human Rights has got nothing to do with the European Union. So anyway, we will have more on this on Friday, I have no doubt. Uh, let's move on. Uh, and Debbie, uh, what have you got for us? Good afternoon. Yes, well, I would just like to remind viewers of an article that Brian Gerrish brought up on the UK Column News back in 2015. And it was uh, all about prevent duty and is Britain a Stasi state? And it's a, a, it's a, a subject we want to explore more. So we've brought back our original series of No Smoke Without Fire, um, and we're going to be uh, shortly recording an interview. And this time we're going to be looking at PREVENT, the PREVENT guidance, the PREVENT policy. What does this mean? How does it impact every single one of us or could impact every single one of us? Could we have somebody knocking at the door? What does PREVENT have to do with terrorism? And it was very timely that when I was researching it, I went and found a David Cameron clip from 2015, which I thought the days that we're living in today was very timely. Let's have a look. Wherever we're from, whatever our background, whatever our religion, there are things we share together. We're all British. We respect democracy and the rule of law. We believe in freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of worship, equal rights regardless of race, sex, sexuality or faith. We believe in respecting different faiths, but also expecting those faiths to support the British way of life. These are British values and are underpinned by distinct British institutions. Our freedom comes from our parliamentary democracy. The rule of law exists because of our independent judiciary. This is the home that we're building together, whether you're Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, Christian or Sikh, whether you were born here or born abroad, we can all feel part of this country and we must now all come together and stand up for our values with confidence and with pride. We should challenge the ludicrous conspiracy theories of the extremists. The world is not conspiring against Islam. The security services aren't behind terrorist attacks. Our new prevent duty for schools is not about criminalizing or spying on Muslim children. This is paranoia in the extreme. In fact, that duty will empower parents and teachers to protect children from all forms of extremism, whether Islamist extremism or neo-Nazi extremism. We should challenge together the conspiracy theories about our Muslim communities too, and I know how much pain these can cause. We must stand up to those who try to suggest there's some kind of secret Muslim conspiracy to take over government, or that Islam and Britain are somehow incompatible. People who say these things are trying to undermine our shared values and make Muslims feel like they don't belong here. And we must not let these conspiracy theorists win. This is a group that throws people off buildings, that burns them alive. And as Channel 4's documentary last week showed, its men rape underage girls and stone innocent women to death. This isn't a pioneering movement. It is a vicious, brutal, and fundamentally abhorrent existence. And here's my message to any young person here in Britain thinking of going out there. You won't be some valued member of a movement. You are cannon fodder for them. They will use you. If you're a boy 
They will brainwash you, strap bombs to your body and blow you up. If you are a girl, they will enslave and abuse you. That is the sick and brutal reality of ISIL. And you may notice behind him, one nation, one United Kingdom. And of course, he's now our foreign secretary. So Brian and I will be um, talking more about the prevent strategy and how it affects every single one of us um, going forward. Uh, it'll be a very interesting interview. Okay. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, now let's move to Vanessa. And uh, Vanessa, bring us up to date with what's going on in Gaza. Yeah, well, before I actually go into Gaza, I wanted to focus um, for this section on Syria, because the focus has been entirely and quite rightly on Gaza and uh, the West Bank and the Israeli uh, war crimes and ethnic cleansing operation that is ongoing in both areas of the occupied territories. But Syria is also facing um, an escalation, albeit a relatively soft escalation. Nevertheless, it is increasing uh, in conflict situations here in Syria. So I wanted to show today basically how the US, Israel and uh, the illegal armed groups, the terrorist groups, particularly in the Northwest, but including ISIS, are um, effectively working together to put pressure on the Syrian Arab army and, of course, their allies inside Syria. So first of all, in one month, there have been, in fact, 56 attacks against uh, US facilities, both in Iraq and in Syria. People can freeze frame this and check out the actual areas that have been uh, targeted. This is by the Islamic resistance in Iraq. But there is a new organization now on the scene for the last three days called SWAT, Jazeera Arabia, which suggests that it's coming from uh, sort of the Gulf states areas. And that has been uh, taken responsibility for firing missiles and drones into the occupied territories, including into Elat. Now, people can freeze frame this map because it's a little bit difficult to see everything uh, on screen. But I just wanted to quickly run through the various operations. So on the 19th of October, for example, I was talking about ISIS. You had an attack against al-Shukna in Homs. Um, and on the 8th of November, ISIS again uh, attacked the triangle between Homs, Hama, and Raqqa, killing 21 Syrian Arab army soldiers. Uh, in both cases, the Syrian army retaliated and pushed them back towards, as you see, the Al-Tanif US military base from where they, they, they were generated or the attacks were generated. Then in combination with that, so again, on the 8th of November, Israel hit Syrian Arab army positions southwest of Damascus, putting out of action uh, both a radar and an air defense uh, system in Sweda. And on the 10th of November, so in the last few days, uh, Israel hit a Syrian Arab army base southwest of Homs, which is all of these places are shown on the map. People can have a look at it later. Hezbollah military fighters claim that response firing occurs into territories. No one has actually taken response for that attack. The 9th of November, so just close together, these are the U.S. Air Force carried out on a bakery and distribution center in Deir and 
clashed directly with the Arab army to the west of the UAE. Now, this is very real. This is the first time or a very long time aware of direct clashes that lasted for longer than two hours. On the third bomb, Mal crossing, which is uh, the, the cross open between Iran, Iran. Vanessa, oh. Vanessa, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Look, your your uh, audio is breaking up extremely badly, and we're not getting a lot of this. So, so look, uh, um, okay. why don't you why don't you try to reconnect, uh, and uh, we'll we'll come back to this in, in a second. Let me, okay. let me let me move on. Uh, I want to to move on to the criminal justice bill here, uh, and uh, this, of course, has now been submitted for its first reading. Uh, in the House of Commons yesterday. So the Criminal Justice Bill, a bill to amend the criminal law to make provision for cr about criminal justice, including the powers and duties of the police, about dealing with offenders, to make provision about the confiscation and use of monies in suspended accounts, and so on. You can see that on screen at the moment. But I wanted to highlight a couple of key parts to this. First of all, uh, let's have a look at this. They are going to make sentences longer for the most dangerous criminals, including by making rapists serve every day of their sentence behind bars. And people would say on the face of it, that's a very good thing. Uh, but equally, uh, this bill will establish powers to transfer prisoners in and out of England and Wales to serve their sentences abroad. Now, we are in the situation at the moment where we have already a vastly overpopulated prison estate. There are some very large prisons uh, being uh, built at the moment. Uh, but nonetheless, it's not clear at this point what the mechanism would be for people to be removed from the UK in order to serve their sentences abroad. It's not clear which countries would receive them uh, and so on. And, and I think that's a pretty dangerous uh, development uh, when we start to see people being pushed out of the country into other prison regimes abroad uh, under those circumstances. Uh, let's move on. Uh, they say that they are going to give the police the powers they need to tackle theft by creating a new power to enter a premises without a warrant to search for and seize stolen goods, such as phones located using GPS tracking technology. Now, of course, they'll always use a particular scenario in order to justify what it is they're doing. Uh, but I, I'm going to ask Charles for comment on this in a second. And then they go, go on to say, Give the police greater access to the driver and vehicle licensing agency database to identify criminals. Um, so, uh, Charles, let me welcome you to the program here. Now, you're a former police uh, officer yourself. What are your thoughts on the removal of the judicial process in the sense of getting a warrant to enter uh, premises? Thanks, Mike, and good afternoon. I would describe it as being the thin end of the wedge, but I think we are quite far past that stage already. And specifically with powers of entry, I think it's one of those things that people probably don't understand as well they should. First of all, what is set out in law already, but also the degree to which that may be massaged or manipulated by police exercising the powers. Um, so just to set the scene, the, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act from 1984 already grants powers of arrest sorry, powers of entry for the purposes of arrest or indeed for seizing evidence. And so in a sense, what's set out in the Criminal Justice Bill is an extension of that, but whether or not it's proportionate is, is, a, is a separate matter, and I would contend that it probably isn't. Also, it creates a massive administrative burden. It's overcomplicating uh, existing powers and just gives police yet more things to have to deal with. Obviously, it's it's always championed by the legislators as as 
creating more offences. But when you stop and think about that, the effect of having more offences is more confusion and more ways in which people may be trapped by an already completely over-encumbered and uh, unwieldy system. Yes, thank you for that. And, and of course, I just want to, if we just bring this back on the, the King's speech and the legislation around that, uh, as well as being now being given access to DVLA, data investigatory powers ac- uh, amendments are going to bring in a whole load more of data collection and so on uh, available to police uh, as well. Uh, and just to end this, uh, this was probably one of the most uh, difficult parts of it, uh, to help more vulnerable individuals off the streets and direct them to appropriate support. So uh, the criminal justice bill is going to make it uh, effectively criminalise the homeless. Uh, we've already seen this in London in the last uh, uh, few days uh, when 10 tents were removed from the streets, uh, including all the possessions owned by what few possessions they did own uh, by the, the homeless people involved, uh, removed by by the police, uh, not because they were breaking any law, but because the police got a phone call from University College London Hospitals uh, who uh, on their Twitter feed say that they want to be treated with kindness. Uh, they weren't particularly treating those people with kindness, it has to be said. So uh, I think we're going to have to keep an eye on this legislation. This is another piece of legislation that really people should be uh, getting organized against. Uh, and I would uh, just encourage everybody to do that. Uh, Vanessa, uh, hopefully we have you back uh, now. So let's just come back to the to the map. Okay, I don't know how much you missed. Can you hear me okay now? Yes, if or you start breaking it, up. Yes, no, we can hear you perfectly now. So if you start from this map again, okay. so you'd covered you'd covered the ISIS attacks uh, in Homs uh, and and the other ISIS attack, and you'd said that they were coming back, uh, they'd been beaten back by the Syrian military back to Al Tanif, and you talked about what was mm-hmm. going on uh, just south of Damascus and also in Sweda. Uh, so you were just coming on okay. to the other other stuff. Okay, so I talked about the Israeli attacks in the south uh, against Syrian Arab army positions, and then you've had the U.S. basically bombing positions to the east of Deir ez-Zor, hitting aid distribution centers and bakeries, but also the Al-Bukamal crossing, which is essential to Syria to bring in humanitarian relief from Iran through Iraq and into uh, Syria. And there they also out of uh, operation a PMU, the resistance that were responsible for fighting ISIS in Iraq, they put uh, a missile launcher action there. But here again, it's very interesting. We've then had the Syrian Arab army launch 15 missiles against the uh, occupation base or Anfield, um, killing six American soldiers. Now again, this is a first. This is the first time that Syria has actively engaged with American occupation troops in the northeast. So does that signal the start of uh, an escalated conflict directly between Syria and Arab army? That's very potentially. And it's also given permission for Palestinian resistance factions in the south, in the Jolan, Syrian territory, um, to fire on the the occupied Israeli Jolan territory. So we're seeing an interesting escalation. Um, on the 13th of November, Pentagon identified US troops killed in military helicopter crash over the Mediterranean. We don't really have any details. The US is being very insistent on saying that it was it was an error. It, um, it, 
a, a technical fault, Mike, if you can just move on. Yes. Um, and uh, sorry, um, all five were special operations aviation soldiers. Monday that fatal crash happened during routine flight training on Friday. So we don't know if this did have anything to do with the escalation in Syria itself. Um, but definitely we're seeing things hotting up here, albeit the same level as Palestine. Yes. Okay, Vanessa, thank you for that. Um, I'm afraid it is starting to break up a little bit again. So, so why don't you try okay. try once again and we'll see what we can do while we run through the ad break here. So, so look, uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership uh, very much needed and appreciated. This is what keeps us going. So uh, thank you to everybody that's joined already. Please consider joining us if you would uh, like to support us. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, or but in any case, please uh, share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, Debbie, very briefly, uh, your blog is now up. It is indeed. Lots of topics you can see there on your screen. And I'm asking a big question. Could you give up your smartphone? Okay, and uh, let's just have a look. Uh, two interviews, uh, well, one up and one coming. So uh, yesterday uh, we uh, broadcast Roger Meacock, an uh, interview with Debbie, Big Pharma, Small Farmer. Uh, have a look at that. Uh, but also tomorrow then we will be speaking to Chris Williamson uh, and uh, that will go out at 1 p.m. Uh, as, as in the 1 p.m. slot tomorrow. Um, I want to finally just remind everybody once again of the first annual David Ray Griffin Lecture, which we are hosting on behalf of International Centre for 9-11 Justice, uh, the Ruthless Empire post 9-11. And really, uh, this is going to be looking at uh, the events or the, that have been justified by uh, what happened on September 11th, 2001. Uh, and uh, that will be taking place on Sunday, uh, December the 3rd, 2023. Uh, beginning 7 p.m. Central European time, that's 6 p.m. UK time. Uh, please do join us for that. Um, so let's move on now. Vanessa, hopefully uh, everything's working again. Uh, and let's have a look at the uh, emergency uh, summit held by the Arab League. Yeah, so this basically went on the 10th of November. It was largely a disappointment, particularly for those that were for a strong American by the 57 um, Arab League uh, countries and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation that was also involved in the meeting. So let's have a look at the proposal that was put forward initially by 11 states and rejected actually by five states. Um, preventing the use of American and other military bases in Arab countries to supply Israel with weapons and ammunition. Two, freezing Arab diplomatic, economic security and military relations with Israel. Three, threatening to use oil and Arab economic capabilities to pressure to stop the aggression. Four, preventing Israeli civil aviation flying in Arab airspace. Five, Arab ministerial committee that will travel immediately to New York, Washington, Brussels, Geneva, London and Paris in order to convey the Arab summit's request to stop the Israeli aggression against Gaza. So let's see the states that actually both proposed this plan uh, and endorsed it. Palestine, Syria, Algeria, Tunisia, Iraq, Lebanon, Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, Libya, uh, and Yemen. Opposed Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, also Djibouti, and Mauritania. 
Um, obviously, for Saudi Arabia, the, the normalization process is still on the table, as they've made perfectly clear, normalization with um, Israel. Bashar al-Assad's speech was recognized as being one of the strongest uh, at the summit, and I will just uh, summarize it in the next uh, slide. He argued that the aggression against Gaza cannot be understood in isolation from prior Zionist crimes. Arab Islamic nations to avoid fragmented responses, emphasizing the lack of comprehensive actions Israel to execute further massacres, leading to potential complete annihilation of Palestinians. He also said, this was a paraphrase, this is a couple of direct quotes, neither the land nor justice has returned to Palestine or the Jolan. This situation has produced a equation the more Arab capitulation towards Israel, the more Zionist ferocity towards us. The more we extend our hand, the more massacres against us. Israel knows nothing about peace, strong words uh, from President Assad, and he pointed out that this, the, the Palestinian resistance has given us uh, an opportunity. So he says, let us take advantage of the global transformation that has opened for us political doors that have been closed for decades so that we can change the equations of souls who died in Palestine be a worthwhile price for achieving what we were unable to do in the past and what we must accomplish in the present and in the future. Of course, he is referring to Ben the Pivot East at that point, but also from Yemen, um, they've put out a statement, uh, Very, I've crossed out Houthi because this is a misrepresentation um, particularly by Western media, it's a coalition government of more than 36 representative political entities inside Yemen. And Trulaf has put out a statement saying, just move on, Mike. Uh, thank you. That they will put a complete embargo on the Red Sea to Israeli shipping. So they will basically attack any Israeli ships that come into the Red Sea. Also interesting that the US has one of its uh, nuclear powered submarines towards the Red Sea, along with various other um, uh, Navy uh, boats, uh, potentially uh, to, to take on Yemen itself, because of course Yemen has been firing missiles into the occupied territories. So from Ansrullah, our people will not yield to their enemies, neither to the Americans nor the British, nor their agents. No one will ever change our humanitarian, ethical, and faithful stance. So strong words from Yemen, that strong action. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. Uh, let's come back to the UK. And of course, we have a new health secretary. Um, so let's uh, bring her on screen here. Uh, she is Victoria Atkins. Uh, and uh, well, here's her arriving at the Department of Health uh, and look who has uh, decided to meet her, Debbie. Oh, please. Could you have done a spoiler warning before that? Chris Whitty, Professor Chris Whitty. So what's, what's your thoughts on her? Uh, my thoughts, let's let's have a look at Victoria Atkins. So let me tell you a little bit about Victoria Atkins. So out goes the uh, divisive solicitor, Steve Barclay, who was also CEO of Barclays Bank. And in comes Victoria Atkins, who is a barrister and her area of expertise was fraud. Um, but she was involved in a little bit of a a controversy back in 2018 when she was working for the Home Office because her husband is licensed, was CEO of a company called British Sugar, 
um, which was licensed to produce legal cannabis in the UK. So she had to recuse herself from all of that. Um, her husband there, you can see Paul Kenwood. And it's it's ironic, really, because Victoria Atkins is also diabetic. She was diagnosed as diabetic. And her husband is literally into everything sugar related. So she can't really talk about sugar. And she can't really talk about cannabis either, because her husband was, and I say was, CEO of British Sugar, because when I went to Company's house, and he is director of many, many companies, but when I went to look at British Sugar, I found that he'd resigned just very recently on the 4th of November. Now, that uh, that in, it, in itself throws up a lot of questions as to what did they know and how long has this been planned. She's also very pro pharmaceutical interventions. She's very uh, clued up on using pharmacies as safe space for domestic abusers. But she she doesn't seem to be able to speak about sugar, although she lives off her husband's income, obviously, which is sugar. She can't speak about cannabis because her husband was producing legal cannabis that was being used for children with epilepsy, so pharmaceuticals. And um, when she was asked a question about police, this might interest Charles, she got a little stumped on that as well. Let's look back and see or hear Victoria Atkins talking to LBC Radio. But you'll be aware of the number of police officers we have in the country at this time, won't you? Uh yeah, yes, I think. Uh, well, I know in London it's around about 31,000 uh, officers. Right, but the whole um, of the country, you'll be aware of the figure, won't you, Minister? It's... Uh, oh, you're testing me, Nick. I'm so sorry. It's... Um, uh, I'm not going to hazard a guess. I'm just going to front up and say I'm so sorry that number's right. slipped my mind. You are I a do Home apologize. Office Minister. Minister, wouldn't it be a good idea to have the figures? It would be, Nick. Okay. Thank it's you. It's 123,142. Oops. And uh, do you trust her with your life in her hands? Personally, uh, I don't. Yes, good question. Good question. OK, uh, thank you, Debbie. Uh, Charles, uh, Debbie, over the last uh, couple of months, has been uh, talking about uh, lithium and, and, and with respect to lithium-ion batteries and so on and, and the various pressure for net zero. Um, what have you got on this? She has. Thanks, Mike. Um, Yes, lithium, never far from the news, but specifically what I'd like to deal with today is the extraction of it within the United Kingdom, according to the policy set out in the UK's critical minerals strategy, but specifically to do with the financing of it and the environmental concerns, which, as you say, Debbie has touched on. So it's something of an update, really, but particularly because there's yet another announcement of an uplift in funding made available, and as you say, specifically for the production and refinement of lithium for the manufacture of batteries for EVs, electric vehicles. So the question is, where is this money being channeled through? It's announced by government, but which organisations is it that are actually delivering this and how are they doing that? So the first one of two that I'd like to look at is Advanced Propulsion Centre UK, APC UK, very much has the appearance of a standalone corporate entity. But when you scratch behind the surface, you find that that's not quite the case. It declares that whilst they're dedicated to creating a net zero future, 
They collaborate with UK government to accelerate the industrialization of technologies. Now, looking at their annual report, 22 to 23, it's interesting to note that they received £6.2 million in government grants, as opposed to only generating £920,000 of their own cash, as it were. They dispensed £1.3 million in grants, and evidently it's the business to be in because the staff of 44 spent £4.2 million on salary in year. So that's, on average, almost £100,000 each, despite the fact they're not actually generating very much of their own income. The next organisation to look at is the UK Infrastructure Bank. Again, has the appearance of a standalone entity. It's written up on the government website as being an arm's length body which is an interesting description, particularly as the same paragraph describes it as being operationally independent. Now, that'll be something in light of the recent departure of the or, uh, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. That phrase will mean different things to different people now, I think. But it's, uh, it's, it's one that guarantees its projects by what's called a sovereign infrastructure guarantee, which in actual fact turns out to be something that's backed by the Treasury. So the the important point here is that whilst this looks like this is perhaps the injection of private equity, it's not. It's it's by and large the spending of public money on projects that the government is putting money into other organisations in order to have it spent, as it were. Now, it relies very much upon a fair wind. Um, The government declared that uh, Funding from one competition alone could create or safeguard over 4,700 jobs and save nearly 65 million tonnes of carbon dioxide being emitted over the next decade. So there's a lot of conditionals going on there. Um, In terms of what is really happening, I took a look at the report produced by the UK Infrastructure Bank. And interestingly, the first project that they stated they'd had involvement with was the upgrading of the Haven't Thicket Reservoir, the first to be, in in effect, uh, dealt with since the late 80s, early 90s. And whilst they didn't declare it on their website, the uh, inquiring local press organisation Haven't Matters had found out that in actual fact, the plan involved introducing seven and a half million litres of recycled effluent into the reservoir every day to be mixed with the spring water. So not quite the green project that the UK uh, Infrastructure Bank is making it out to be. Um, In terms of where the money that we're talking about is going in the immediate future, I've just taken a sample of the recipients, the grant recipients. One will be known to Uh, UK column viewers and listeners due to Debbie's previous reporting on it, and that's Cornish Lithium, um, who are, I suppose, closest to the the finish line being being involved in the the business of actually extracting the lithium, which they're almost ready to do, apparently. There's then Green Lithium, who are refining, uh, or at least have the capability to refine up in Teesside, then Geothermal Engineering, also in Cornwall, and Ilika Technologies, who interestingly refer not just to transportation, but also healthcare. So I think Debbie will have an an opinion on exactly what that's about. 
So to take Cornish lithium, which, as I say, is closer to production than the others, they're at great pains to express their green credentials in their sustainability report. And they say that uh, the manner in which they will conduct their activities is, in a sense, making them a greener outfit. And it's one of these issues that's that's admired in all sorts of complications, very hard to make any kind of a judgment as to what exactly it means. But they, they've decided that they will be a global leader in terms of GHG emissions, which of course could be interpreted in one of two ways. Um, the next point to make is really that the whilst they're ready to extract, you might be thinking that they would have conducted all the necessary assessments into the impact they're going to be making on the environment that they're operating in. That's not actually the case. And Consultancy UK, uh, an online publication, has produced a report which uh, tells us that Cornish Lithium has employed an ESG specialist consultancy called ERM, which will help it work up uh, an environmental impact assessment and an environment and social impact assessment. But Consultancy UK does report that it's it's not all good news. And it talks specifically, which is something Debbie has referred to in the past, about the possibility of water contamination, land degradation, and other issues that are frankly glossed over by government and by all of the, the projects that are inserting these large amounts of cash into such things. To quote, um, lithium mining produces around 1.3 million tonnes of carbon annually, they mean carbon dioxide, with every tonne of mined lithium equating to 15 tonnes of carbon dioxide into the air. Now, context, of course, is important. So I've taken from the World Nuclear Organization, sorry, Association that worldwide emissions of carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels totals about 34 billion tonnes per year. So Clearly, there is an enormous disparity between the two. But of course, with lithium being only at the front end of its production cycle, it's impossible to dismiss that as being an irrelevant statistic. So the environmental credentials are difficult to align with the perhaps the, the, the logic that is being um, set out to underpin the, the government funding, which, as I say, of course, is with public money. Um, I was interested to know what the view was uh, in the climate lobbyist area. So I got in touch with Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion in order to ask them what their view on this matter was, in a sense, putting forward the position that the mining of lithium is a good thing because it reduces carbon dioxide. And yet there is, of course, a substantial environmental impact of the process itself. Just Stop Oil, I'm afraid, didn't get back to me. And the press officer from Extinction Rebellion, somewhat to my surprise, confirmed that Extinction Rebellion does not hold a movement-wide position on this. So that's that's as far as I went with the with the sort of activist side of it. Um, and by way of wrapping up, or at least tying in the uh, the areas of money and environment, or indeed the involvement of the end user, who after all will be us, is the delivery of the technology and how effective is it so the example i would cite is something that's coming more into the into the public domain now which is the complication over insurance of evs electric vehicles 
And there are, I've got a, a slide here from uh, an American publication, Motor Biscuit, but really just because it illustrates the point. And it says minor EV battery damage in accident, insurance company will total car. And what this means is that it appears that the vast majority of batteries in EVs are very, very susceptible to damage. And the slightest bit of, uh, of damage will result in the battery having to be replaced, which, of course, is, is at huge cost. A, a top-end Tesla battery costs well over £10,000, and even those of vehicles that are that are less uh, high up the sort of range still have a very high price tag attached to them. And to quote from Fleet News, uh, we're buying electric cars for sustainability reasons, said Matthew Avery, research director at automotive risk intelligence company Thatcham Research. But an EV isn't very sustainable if you've got to throw the battery away after a minor collision. Some car makers, including Ford, are making battery packs easier to repair, but others, such as Tesla, have opted to use structural battery packs, which are said to have zero repairability. So, of course, not only is the taxpayer funding these projects in the first place, but also being asked to foot bill in terms of insurance, because it's not just the insurance premiums of EVs that will be pushed up, this will go across the board as the insurance companies seek to mitigate against these exorbitant costs of replacing batteries. So that's a, a, sort of where we are on the, uh, on, the, on the finance and the environmental concerns with lithium. Just to end on a, something of a high note, I'll make very short reference to an excellent gathering I attended in Stroud on Saturday. It was organised by Project Libertas, and it drew in a determined band of people from all over the British Isles, including one chap I met who'd flown in from Dublin just for the day. Some very, very good, very detailed speakers. I will prepare uh, a, a further piece on this with, with accompanying audio. But um, for UK column viewers and listeners, you'll be heartened to know that Sandy Adams was there. It was very, very well received. It was hosted in the old convent in Stroud, a great cavernous structure. And uh, I must say, there was no sign of global warming in there. Thank you, Charles. Thank you very much. Uh, well done. And uh, Debbie, let's uh, come on to GB News and ARC. Yeah, I just want to say um, I've been joining a few dots here and I want to look at how GB News seem to be having their fingers in a lot of pies. So we start off with the eye that we're reporting. I'm sure a lot of people have heard that Boris Johnson will now have his own show on GB News. And of course, Boris and Nigel Farage equal Trump. But then we'll go on to the BBC report. Uh, and the BBC say that Ofcom are going to tell GB News not to uh, to stop hiring politicians. We are, at the moment, Lee Anderson gets £100,000 a year. Esther McVeigh was getting 58650 Philip Davis, uh, Esther McVeigh's husband, 46203 a year. And apparently Sir Jacob didn't reveal his earnings, but it doesn't take a lot. It, it doesn't, it's not rocket science to go and look at the government publication on expenses, employment and earnings. And you can see there that Jacob Rees-Mogg is looking at taking home approximately £30,000 a month. So let's look at Esther McVeigh, because, of course, Esther has now been appointed to the cabinet and she's the Minister of Common Sense. And she's had to leave GB News, of course, as a result. 
But um, you might remember Esther's great speech that she made for the vaccine damage. Um, you can still see her speech on YouTube where she speaks on the vaccine damage payments bill on the 20th of October 2023. And of course, she supported Andrew Bridgen in his recent debate. Um, and of course, she's now had to, as I say, come off GB News. She was hosting a morning news programme with her husband, Philip Davis, who's also um, an MP, and um, she was earning a pretty penny. So let's look at her earnings um, according to the government employment and earnings. And you can see there that she was earning a pretty penny too. So let's look at GB News because they splash out a lot of cash, as you can see. So who are their investors? We've talked about Legatum before, but I just want to talk about Legatum a little bit. Uh, more in depth. Legatum means gift and they're actually uh, funded by anonymous donations. But in their portfolio, you can see there that you've got the Luminos Fund. And if we just uh, go and look at the Luminos Fund and see if there's any involvement with anyone else, we can clearly see that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have been supporting the Luminos Fund, who are part of Legatum who are part of GB News. So who runs Legatum? Well, Legatum is a Dubai-based company, but it's run by New Zealand-born um, businessman called Christopher Chandler. Now, he hit the headlines. This was a long time ago, back in 2018, but he did hit the headlines for um, some claims that he was involved with Moscow intelligence and that he was a Russian spy. He denied all claims, obviously, but, you know, as we've said before with Brian and I's interview coming up, there's no smoke without fire. So that took me into looking a little bit deeper into Legatum and into Sir Paul Marshall and Christopher Chandler. And I just found this article uh, on the 9th of November from The Guardian, which says that Barnaby Joyce, uh, an MP, was amongst the politicians gifted a trip to Jordan Peterson's led Conservative conference. Now, this was backed by Sir Paul Marshall and Legatum. So if we just go a little bit further to look at um, who else is involved in ARC, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, because they've just recently had their conference that was led by Jordan Peterson, we can see that Michael Gove also is involved in ARC alongside Kemi Badenoch. So who are ARC? Well, if you go to YouTube, you can find a, a nice little trailer. Um, there's a, a, they're called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. Sorry, that's the first slide that there, just to point you in the direction to their website. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, and ARC stands for Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. And they've got a nice little YouTube, which you can go and look at in, in length, called Hope in the Age of Permacrisis. But let's take a very short little look at who ARC are. We at the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship do not believe that humanity is necessarily and inevitably teetering on the brink of apocalyptic disaster. We do not believe that we are beings primarily motivated by lust for power and the desire to dominate. We do not regard ourselves or our fellow citizens as destructive forces living in an alien relationship to the pristine and pure natural world. There are a series of narratives out there, these stories that we're telling ourselves that are actually determining a lot of our global behavior. And you see your children coming home fearful 
about the future. There is an epidemic mental health crisis worldwide, in great part due to the breakdown of the social fabric and confusion over values where economic prosperity, work, and materialism is prioritized over family. The breakdown of, of all of these social connections is related to a vision of the human being which sees the, the person as just a consumer criticizing humans for being parasites on the world. We have the possibility of formulating a different vision of humans. The rejection of our traditional beliefs have not produced viable alternative narratives. We must reinvigorate our sense of citizenship. We must encourage one another to serve, to step up, to lead with courage wherever leadership is needed. The ARC network that I'm a part of will seek to address these goals and more. Arc is emerging already as a wonderful community of people who are just full of hope for the way forward and um, want to bring in a different culture and a different vision for where we can go as a people. There is a greater narrative that we can all chime in on for the things that we all want together, which is human flourishing, human prosperity, human well-being, all moored to hope we posit that men and women of faith and decisiveness made in the image of God can arrange their affairs with care and attention. Welcome aboard the Ark. Sounds great, right? So let's just have a quick look at some of their huge advisory board. So I've just picked out a few. So we've got Paul Marshall, GB News, Arc Schools, Alan McCormack, Legatum Partner, Chairman of GB News, Christopher Chandler, founder of Legatum, Jordan Peterson, clinical psychologist. And if we go to the next slide, you'll see Danny Kruger, MP, Miriam Cates, MP, Baroness Morrissey, Nims Obunga, who's a deputy lieutenant for King Charles, uh, CEO of Peace Alliance, and also Tony Abbott, the 28th Prime Minister of Australia. So that's where GB News seem to be spreading their tentacles. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think we'll have uh, a lot more to say about that in extra. So thank you, Debbie. Let's go back to the Middle East. Uh, and Vanessa, uh, the hospital uh, attack by the Israelis, uh, well, that was making the news this morning. What have you got? Yeah. So basically, uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. Because the connection is not great. Okay. Um, so this was a meme that was put out by Mint Press News yesterday that Israeli snipers uh, had killed four patients and two nurses at the Al-Shifa Hospital. Worth pointing out that Al-Shifa Hospital was actually built, it was the first to be built in uh, the Gaza Strip under the British mandate, so in 1946, even before the 1948 ethnic um, by by the Zionists of the Palestinians. Um, in the last 24 hours, Israeli snipers have shot inside Al-Shifa Hospital, killing two nurses and four patients and a paraplegic man, according to Doctors Without Borders. The threat of snipers, according to Dr. Abu Silmeye, has prepared him and other hospitals patients and at least placed individuals from leaving the facility. We've not been able to go to retrieve the dead bodies outside for fear of getting shot, he said. Um, look at, these are just some of the um, items that have been put out in the last 48 hours. Thank you 
beta babies have died because it's impossible to regulate temperatures for them. One paramedic who tried to reach the incubator section was sniped and killed. Hundreds of dead bodies are lying around the hospital and snipers are preventing burial. There's no food or water in the hospital. It's under full sea. The ICU unit is full of patients without power. Oxygen and dialysis units are not functioning. 3,000 patients are thought to be inside the hospital. 15,000 displaced refugees, both inside and outside. Doctors are isolated in their sections. They're not able to cross from one section to another. The surgery building was actually uh, struck by shelling. Displaced refugees trying to flee or surrender have been shot. Other smaller hospitals are overwhelmed with patients and do not have the capacity to deal with the critically injured. They would always traditionally be sent to Al-Shifa. And a more recent today, uh, just before I came on, report from Euromed Monitor that the Israeli forces have now Al-Shifa hospital. They've turned it into a military barrack and detention center. And there is spread abuse of civilians, refugees, medical staff and doctors ongoing. Um, at the same time, of course, we're seeing the familiar uh, propaganda that's been circulated, particularly from uh, Israeli and Western media that is now again being walked back. The IOF itself has now put out a statement saying that there were no weapons and there were no hostages in the tunnels uh, associated with Shifa Hospital. Um, and I want to focus here on President Isaac uh, Herzog, He's put out, you remember, the claim that Hamas had uh, instructions on chemical weapons. That was his previous claim. And now in an interview with uh, the BBC, he revealed that a children's room in a civilian home in the Gaza Strip was used as a Hamas terror base, in which, guess what, an Arabic copy of Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, somebody did a very nice of Colin Powell holding up Mein Kampf in Arabic there to, to demonstrate what we think of Herzog's claims. And then he threatened yet again, and this is a familiar pattern, in an interview with The Nation, he basically threatened the EU and the UK with ISIS, of course, knowing full well that Israel has been funding and supporting and providing arms and hospital treatment for both ISIS and Al-Qaeda inside Syria. So let's hear what he says to the nation, and then followed by a little mated movie made uh, by an Israeli uh, outreach source showing you what will happen if you don't support Israel and how dare you complain about the genocide that's ongoing in Palestine. So let's just roll the video. Atrocities. These Which atrocities culture? cannot be agree, uh, accepted in any way. It means it has nothing to do with the conflict. It has nothing to do with the borders, with settlements or anything. This is simple, simple, clear barbarism, Jew hate, other hate, which is advocated by ISIS, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, mm -hmm. which if we weren't here, then Europe will be next and probably the United States is the end game for all of them.
But anyway, we needn't fear because uh, war criminal Tony Blair may be appointed as humanitarian coordinator in Gaza. I didn't produce, it was produced by Al Mayadeen, but I thought it was quite apt. Remembering that Tony Blair, um, who quit in 2015 as the Middle East peace, definitely in inverted commas, way, only it will miss him as a journalist, Robert Fisk, who sadly uh, a couple of years ago wrote back in 2015. He was in place for eight years and achieved absolutely nothing. As Fisk said, if only he'd resigned more than two years ago after Palestinian leaders had themselves characterized his job as useless, useless, useless. Israel, of course, would never have described him as this, stoutly condemning the campaign for Israel's delegitimization. Blair talked about this as a form of bias, which was an affront to humanity, a choice of words he never used about the massive civilian casualties inflicted by Israel on the Palestinians of Gaza. And the last video that I just wanted to show was put out by The Cradle. And I think interesting the origins of uh, the leadership of the far-right extremist government that is in power in Israel at the moment. We've got the connections, particularly Yonahu, to the revisionist Zionists that collaborate Nazis in Ukraine. But I think it's interesting the origins. Very, very few indigenous um, Jews in the, the far-right government that is in existence right now. So let's just see the video. I mean, I just find that very interesting in the light of, of what's happening in the Ukraine and the fact that the IOF has been not only fighting in Ukraine, but active uh, in the regime change operation coup in 2014. Interesting. Okay. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for that. Now, uh, Debbie, let's end then with some health news. Uh, yeah, well, actually, before we come to the health news, although I did want to know why uh, this had happened, I was watching the news when there was no communication between Gaza and the WHO, the United Nations and emergency agencies. So I wrote to the BBC, to Tim Davey, uh, Freedom of Information, to ask him how come his reporter, um, Rashid Abadulouf, was actually managing to report from Gaza when there was apparently no communication at all. I wrote, the inf uh, I wrote the Freedom of Information there, you can see, and I've received a reply. And the reply basically, in, in short, says that my request falls outside of the scope of the BBC, of, of uh, the Freedom of Information. So they're not able to give me the information. They don't need to give me the information. And actually, there's no right for appeal. So the letter ended. I mean, please go and you can read the whole, whole thing there, but 
basically I was refused. And it says here the BBC does not offer an internal review. So if I want to uh, challenge this, I have to go straight to the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, jumping on then to the MHRA, I'd like to say thank you to Russell, one of our amazing viewers who I'm actually going to have some more contact with, who sent me this from the MHRA in a blog. They're hiring some inspectors for the compliance team for good pharmacovigilance practice. But you know what? No previous experience is, request, uh, is needed in a variety of backgrounds. If you fancy applying, maybe I will, maybe I should. Um, anyone can apply. So it's a, it's a free for all. Very concerning considering considering it's pharmacovigilance. And then last week, there was a front page article in the Telegraph, um, and I took a screenshot of the, co of the copy I bought, AZ to be sued over defective vaccine. This was um, talking a lot about the vaccine injured and those that bereaved that were taking legal action. But thank you to Cheryl for letting me know that all around social media, the MHRA apparently had phoned the Telegraph to say, to threaten them, to soften the news, otherwise they would be banned from press briefings and press notices. I was very alarmed at this, so I thought, who better to ask than Dame June Rain? So I've written a Freedom of Information to the MHRA to ask if um, this actually happened, if a member of the MHRA did phone the Telegraph threatening them? If so, who was it? And what was softening the news? Um, and I'm very pleased to say that Dame June, who I did write it to her directly, um, has obviously passed it on and I've received a reply to say that my freedom of information is being looked at. So thank you very much for that. Um, and also thank you to Linda, another one of our viewers, who got a reply from her MP following the Andrew Bridgen debate, Dr. James Davis, who's a medical doctor. He says that he's accepted all his COVID vaccines happily. He's only um, talks about mild temporary side effects. And in fact, he's just boosted. But more concerningly, he says, I'm afraid I thoroughly disapprove some of the ill-informed comments Andrew Bridgen has made. And as a doctor, if I were to spread similar misinformation, I would rightly be at risk of losing my GMC license. It is not right to provide conspiracy, to promote conspiracy theories about the vaccine, and I would not attend such a debate. So thank you very much, Dr. James Davis, for that. Anybody else that's his constituent might like to write to him. Uh, Chris Whitty, uh, I have been keeping my eyes on Chris Whitty, although I didn't see him go uh, visit, um, sorry, greet Victoria Atkins through the revolving door. And it is a literal revolving door at the Department of Health. I worked there for many years. Um, but Chris Whitty has just pr produced his annual report, 2023. And basically what he's saying is it's quality over quantity when it comes to ageing. And his whole report is about ageing. And I've just taken one screenshot from a graph that he's put into his report, which shows the UK in 2021 and the UK in 2020, for, uh, 2043. And as you can see, the darker bluer it gets, the higher percentage of population aged 75 and over. So you can see where this is going, can't you? And um, my last bit on this segment is Palantir, and Ben has spoken about Palantir as have I, uh, who want to take over our NHS data for the NHS Federation data platform. Um, apparently, Digital Health have just announced that they are to be named as the winner 
of this contract, which is extremely concerning. However, a group of doctors are not impressed and they've urged ministers to rethink the plan to hand. This is a £480 million deal. And we mustn't forget that Palantir was funded by Peter Thiel, who is also a, a Donald Trump donor. Um, it just the web gets gets even deeper. But just to take a, a little segment of the letters that the doctor the doctors have written. Um, you can see there on the screen there, um, doctors call for pause in NHS Federated data platform contract. And they said basically there was a very poor pilot. They didn't think that it was safe. And indeed, our data could get sold on. So more to come from Palantir. I've highlighted all the relevant bits in red. Well, that is all relevant, but particular bits. But the letter is much longer. So please go online to see that letter because potentially Palantir, this will affect each and every one of us. And where does our data go? Where? Uh, very good questions. And we'll probably have more on that on Friday as well. Um, I want to say thank you very much uh, to Debbie, Charles and Vanessa for uh, helping with the, the news today. Uh, we will be uh, back in a few minutes for some extra if you're a UK column member, but otherwise uh, we'll see you at 1pm as usual on Friday. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.